Welcome to the MedFaber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, welcome, friends. We had a fun episode today. Our guest is a co-founder and chief investing officer for Roundhill Investments, an ETF sponsor focused on thematic and sector-specific investing. In today's show, we're getting meta. Our guest begins with an overview of Roundhill and the firm's unique strategy around distribution. We dive into some of their funds, most notably the fund focused on the metaverse with a ticker I bet Mr. Zuckerberg wish he had. We touch on funds that were focused on esports, sports betting, streaming, and even a couple funds that were launched as a partnership with former podcast guests Toby Carlisle and Chaz Cock. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Longtime listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal by deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invest material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Please enjoy this episode with Roundhill Investments, Tim Maloney. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. You got your hat on last time I saw you in the real world. I mean, where were we? Arizona? We were in Arizona. Yeah. Wealth stack. What was that? 19? Pre-everything that's happened in the last year and a half? Pre-everything. I told you then, but you guys were just like a baby organization then, just kind of getting your feet under you. You had this hat. And I was like, dude, I love the ticker hat. I went the ticker sunglasses route, so you can't see it, listeners, but you had one of the best hat marketing games. You got to send me one. That's part of coming on the podcast. You got to mail one. Absolutely. I'm surprised I didn't give you one at the conference. I must have been out because that's a bad form by me. Where do we find you today? I'm in Northern California here, just north of San Francisco in my kind of home office here. I'm the only of the Roundhill team that's on the West Coast. So the rest of them keep Eastern hours and I struggle to stay kept up. Aren't you a New Yorker by trade or do I have that wrong by origin? No, you're right. Born and raised in New York. Actually grew up with my co-founder, Will, which I'm sure we'll get into in Manhattan and uh, moved out here in 2016 for a job at the time. And then have since obviously left that job and started Round Hill, but decided to plant down some roots here. Yeah. What's the name of the steps that hike near you guys? That's great. Stinson Steps or something? The Dipsy Steps. Dipsy. Dipsy Steps which are about three houses down from our where I live. We actually, there's a race every year that was this past Sunday. And I raced it for the first time. So cool. not usually into that type of stuff, but I figured it's three houses down. Kind of got to participate. Yeah, well, I should have knocked on your door. I did it last time I was there. But more importantly, if you've never been to Mill Valley listeners, there's also a German beer hall in the middle of the woods. 
it's called like the tours club or something. So that's more my style is hike to a beer hall. That'll give you the reward on the end. So listeners, next time I'm up there, we'll do a Tim Roundhill Cambria meetup and go hiking in the woods. We should. I've only been once. I haven't joined yet. I plan to, but I was on a hike with some friends about three years ago, planned a long hike and basically bumped into this place on a day they were open to the public. They're not always open to the public. So we kind of cut our hike off at like a mile and had some beers and it's a real nice setup there. Yeah. Well, look, let's talk about what the hell you guys are up to. It's been a lot going on for you guys. My goodness, quite a year, quite a couple of years. You said your origin story starts in like kindergarten or something, which I've never heard before, I think, with founders. So give us the quick genesis and then we'll uh, start talking about all things nerd, bets, meta and everything else. Yeah, definitely. So as you said, our origin story really goes back to kindergarten. My co-founder, Will, and I started in school together in kindergarten. We actually went to the same school from kindergarten through college graduation. So three different schools, but all together, which is honestly kind of crazy. We remained close the whole time, kind of went our separate ways professionally after school. So I went and kind of did the larger institutional route within finance. I was currency sales at Morgan Stanley. Then I traded investment grade bonds at Wells Capital and ultimately kind of left in 2018 to start Roundhill. Will actually got into the ETF business right out of the gate. He was involved with some of the first couple MLP ETFs and really kind of saw that part of the industry starting in 2011, 2012. So got some really interesting experience then. And we kind of met back in the middle in 2018. And at this point, I think we can tell the full friends and family story, which we used to keep to ourselves. But really, a lot of the origins for Roundhill came from cryptocurrencies, not that we invest in cryptocurrencies here at Roundhill. But what we saw was around that time, there was a really active community on social media, Twitter in particular, but other channels talking about the investment landscape for crypto. And they were really engaged. It wasn't a conversation that was being driven by like the banks or any of these established names. It was a lot of anonymous people out there doing like really interesting due diligence on these opportunities. And we said, well, I think there's room for this audience to do similar due diligence on kind of the ETF product. It's a great wrapper. It's available broadly to the public. And I think what we need to do is if we create products that make sense to this kind of same demographic, and there's a Venn diagram, and we're kind of starting in the middle and hoping the circles grow. But if we can reach those people with interesting products that tackle themes that are relevant to them and adjacent in some ways to what they're doing in crypto and kind of hit them with a strategy from a content and marketing point of view that reaches them, there's something to be done there. And ultimately, we have took that initial thesis and we started with Nerd, which we launched in 2019, and it's kind of built it out from there. I think we'll probably get into it, but it has implications for kind of how we sell funds. So we don't have a distribution team. We may in the future, transparently, but for right now, we're really kind of focused on these one-to-many channels and finding a way to create almost viral ETFs. I think that concept is relatively new, but something we're trying to lean into and kind of continue building from. So I'm sure a lot of people are interested in this topic because we get daily, certainly weekly, but often daily inquiries about ETFs. And the good news now, we've done a few prep shows where like, this is how you launch an ETF. We wrote an article about it. Then we did a few podcasts, most of them with Wes Gray about the topic. So listeners, if you're interested, ping Wes, not me. It's a modern take. Like you mentioned, I mean, historically, asset management companies, if you talk to every CEO, I can't tell you how many times I would talk to people and they would say, it's all about distribution. It's all about distribution. It's all about sales. It's all about sales. And I said, well, huh, that's kind of funny. Like, 
doesn't have anything to do with like how good the product is or whether it's a good fit. It's just that you sold it to someone and they bought it or the various infinite levels of conflicts of interest that are embedded. So tell us how you guys built this, how you thought about it. And part of this, to be honest, listeners, because we've done something similar is a little bit out of necessity. You know, if you're bootstrapping and don't have any money, you don't have a lot of choices to build out a giant sales force. But tell us about how you guys thought about it and what was the approach and what year did Nerd launch? You said 2019? Yep. So we launched Nerd in 2019. We then followed it with Bets in 2020. And I think, look, transparently, and I think this is sometimes helpful for other folks who are maybe starting businesses or thinking about starting businesses. We tried a lot of stuff that just didn't work. We tried to have me be the resident salesperson and kind of picking up the phone. And I think to your point, like as a newer entrant to the space, we've been doing this longer than we have, but as a newer entrant, it's really hard to get a sales conversation going for kind of two reasons. One is it's hard to build out a sales process and have the resources and all of that. But the second is a lot of the larger platforms, they don't really want to talk to you until you have a couple hundred million in a fund or a longer track record or firm level assets at a certain point. So you kind of end up with this chicken and the egg problem. So whether it was lucky that we stumbled into it or hindsight being 2020 was a good idea, but having this more one-to-many distribution channel helps solve that problem. Because the day you list an ETF, it's available on the brokerages, available to the retail and to like the smaller independent RIAs. And really, that's been our bread and butter is reaching them. As to the how, I mean, I hate to say it because it seems kind of silly, but Twitter is probably our most powerful channel by an order of magnitude. We have an email newsletter that we're very active on. But really, our goal is we have these themes. We want to create interesting content about the themes and get it in front of as many people as possible. And really, there's two impacts from that. The first is it can directly drive people to our content, and then they buy the fund, and that's great. But the second, and I think almost more important at this point, is it helps us earn media and earn coverage from other individuals, whether that's traditional media or just people with large follower accounts on social media. And when they start talking about our funds, that has this kind of second order effect that that starts to snowball. One example, when we launched our sports betting fund, I'm not on TikTok, but people were sharing me TikToks of people talking about bets, the new ETF launch for Mount Hill. And we didn't know these people. They found us and they decided to talk about it. And really, we're trying to find ways to just build that kind of buzz in the community. And in a way, we provide our content for free. And it is free. We don't we have no like paid research channels or anything like that. And if people like what they see, we hope they buy the funds because the funds fit their investment thesis. And that's really the goal here. So I think that's kind of how I think about it. It's a modern interpretation. We've kind of talked a lot about this where you have so many of these legacy companies that want to do sort of modern social And so many of them are just so bad at it. And I don't profess to be amazing at it, but I'm just saying you see others and it's just cringe. But content has always been the driver. We talk about maybe it's Fisher with direct mail and marketing or Edelman with radio, or I don't know who's the best example of TV ads or content is, but just kind of on and on. I mean, Kramer, obviously with the street, but the Twitter, the talk, et cetera. It's fascinating that that's been kind of the, entry for you guys where people see it and then just has its viral loops around. Walk us through the early days because starting up an ETF company is no joke. Many fail. The average fund, I think it's over half close over any decade. And you guys are a rare success story. Was it always obvious when you guys put the first one out or was it a sort of a grind for the first year or so? So first and foremost, thank you for the kind words. Transparently, once again, and maybe this is helpful to other entrepreneurs out there. The first year, I mean, we launched Nerd and 
I think the peak assets were about 17 million, which, you know, the ETF business economics, but for those who don't, that's not making money. You're losing money. Now we have been in a fortunate position. We had raised some outside funding. So we were able to lose money for a little. What'd you guys do? Did you do friend and family? You do VC? So it was a mix. We did some friend and family, but ultimately closed a VC round, which is, I think, very, it's a very non-traditional type of investment for the VC world. We kind of went a different approach. And our first fund was Nerd, which is focused on esports. We went to an esports focused VC. And ultimately, they said, we get this. We also get esports. And I think a lot of other people out there do and will want to invest. So it's not our core competency investing financial services firms. We like what you're doing here. We also did a co-brand. The name of the fund is the Roundhill Bitcraft Esports and Digital Entertainment ETF. They kind of saw similar vision to what we saw. So they invested. But it is definitely, if you're out there trying to raise money for an ETF business, it might be a little easier now since I think the space is a little bit more, the opportunities are more visible. It's a tough sell for the traditional VC crowd, if I'm honest. Can you disclose who the VC was? Is that public? Yep. So their name is Bitcraft Esports Ventures. Oh, it is Bitcraft. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they're the ones. And they, as an esports focused firm, they were very excited as well about the co branding opportunity. That's fascinating. Some of the partnerships you see going on. I mean, I've talked about this for a long time on the show where I say, you know, there's not a whole lot of ways to invest in the actual ETF industry. There's one publicly traded company, Wisdom Tree, but they're on the large side, I think 50 plus billion. And then we used to, for a long time, talk about, and I probably talked to you about this because would love to get on your cap table, but it's, it's I got to be very careful because it's of all the conflicts. But I said, I would love to do a private equity, I guess it'd be VC-ish fund that would invest in the 10 companies we know intimately that are going to be a good chance of being some big winners. I think it's a great idea. Listeners, if you want to see it, hit me up and maybe we can talk about it. But anyway, okay. So you had the comfort level of the runway, slow growth, like you mentioned, sub 20 million is sort of a sleepless nights area. It doesn't feel like you're, I mean, you're no longer writing huge checks, but it's not the rocket ship sort of into orbit yet. You're not out of gravitational orbit. What was the first like tailwind you guys got where things started to really start to raise and help on the AUM side? Yeah. So it's interesting because the catalyst was actually just the second ETF, which I think we potentially learned something from and we potentially thought we learned something that maybe isn't true, which I can kind of get to. But on the one year anniversary of NERD, we still believed in the core thesis of creating these viral ETFs. We were kind of looking back a little bit. It was call it April of 2020. We were just starting lockdowns and sports were off. And we basically said, what's a play that we think is interesting in general, but that could be really interesting timing-wise? Sports betting essentially rose to the top. So we had been working on a fund there. And we ended up launching that on the one-year anniversary of Nerd. And I think to replicate the first couple of days of that fund is going to be really hard because it was a very specific market environment. People were stuck at home. A lot more people were coming into trading markets. Sports betting was getting legalized across the states. And there was a very, there's a lot of momentum to that fund. That fund launched and took in, I think, north of $75 million in the first couple of days. Where was that coming from? Did you guys do like a huge PR push? Was it just one giant hedge fund in the Isle of Man? Was it what? <laughs> what was it? What were, were you uh, dancing on the talk? Where'd all that come from? Yeah. So, I mean, with the caveat that you never really know in ETFs, as you know, it was retail. 
we hit the right theme at the right time. And to Will's credit, he was the one who said, let's do this. I was like, sports are not on. How can we launch a sports betting fund? So he was right. So big up to him if he's listening. We put it out there. And like I said, we saw TikToks a day or two later about the fund. It got a ton of coverage. It really just kind of went viral like we thought it could. If you told us the day before we were going to see $75 million in flows in three days, I would have said, you're crazy. Like, take a seat. That's not how this works. But we did. And I think that, first of all, validated our thesis a little bit. So those sleepless nights about does this work? I think we started to believe that it could be done. But the way we got here was what was the catalyst for NERD? That was the catalyst for NERD. So I think over the next several months, NERD went from 13 million, 14 million at the time to at one point over 100. It's a little below there now. But that really was the catalyst. And I think we drew the conclusion that one plus one can equal more like three. Now, we can talk about where we are today because it might be more like two and a half or kind of depends on the story. But that was kind of the initial catalyst where nerds started taking off. That's took off in terms of asset gathering. And we said, there's something here. That's great. And now you guys are closing in on a billion. Congratulations. Hopefully it happens before the end of the year. You got one, two, three, four, what, six, seven funds? Yeah. So we got six that we are the advisor to. We have a seventh where we work with Toby Carlisle, who I know you know well on as well, where technically the advisor is a third party, but I view it as seven funds under umbrella. Toby, many time a podcast alumni that's deep having a monster year up 40%. All right. So let's talk about, and I'll give you the baton. What funds strategies would you like to kind of dig into? There's, if we've covered bets or nerd enough, I'm happy to move on and pick a couple of topics. But have we exhausted the topic on bets and nerd and move on? Or there's some more um, discussion on those that you think is important? I think we may end up coming back to them. But I think what's probably most topical now, and if we didn't get to it, it would be kind of a shame would be our metaverse ETF. So as listeners will know, or may know, there's been a lot of press about the metaverse of late. I think a key catalyst there was actually Facebook's rebrand, where now they are kind of Meta Platforms Inc. And I think this is the second example of an ETF sort of going viral. And then we've seen it in the last couple of weeks, and it's frankly still happening. So knock on wood, that continues. And I think a few interesting things to mention on this product from my perspective. The first is the index for this fund is actually a third party. So it's a group of experts on the metaverse led by Matthew Ball, who Many of you have probably come across over the years. He's kind of like, I don't know if he'd like me calling him the godfather of the metaverse, but he's definitely got the largest body of work writing about it. Yeah, he's a great writer. Fun to read. What's his actual role? Is he a operation or VC at a company? He's done a little bit of everything. He was at Amazon for several years. He does do some private investing. The reason we ultimately connected was more his content, if anything. You want to learn about the metaverse, set aside some time on a weekend and read his body of work. It's really incredible. And that was kind of, there's this idea of almost partnered funds that we had been doing a little bit. We have the fund with Toby. And that's, in my opinion, has been a success story so far. But I think there's value to, in our business with our model, it's about getting eyeballs to the fund and then people make their own decision versus us kind of selling it. There's real value to working with people who have thought leadership in a space and have a following for that thought leadership, it lowers the bar for us to getting the word out there. And that's really how our business works. So I think with that fund, setting aside that we happen to catch a viral moment about the metaverse, I think we've positioned ourselves for success by 
finding Matt and saying, let's do this. And he's got this awesome council that helps make the decisions. And I think there's really something interesting there that we're hoping to expand to. And we launched a fund recently focused on digital infrastructure that's in a very similar model that we can talk a little bit about too. Let's dive into Metaverse while we're here. When did this fund launch, Ballpark? End of Q2. I think it was like June 28th, 29th. So you guys, there's always an element of serendipity and luck when it comes to everything we do. 100%. Or you guys just preordained this, which makes you just the grandmasters of the ticker game. But before we dive deep into actually what the fund does, there's the hilarious moment where one of the largest companies on the planet just up and decided to change their name to Metaverse, which is Facebook. And the most obvious ticker for Metaverse would be your ticker, which is Meta. And you guys have a great ticker game. I think it's underappreciated, despite how much people talk about it. The ticker, I think, is important, especially with thematics. And I know you know that as well. Yeah. So what is the Facebook? It's like MRVS, MVRS or something. Yep. So their plan is to trade under MVRS starting on, I think, December 1st was what the press release said. And look, their announcement generally was great for the metaverse. I mean, it came part and parcel with three days earlier. They said they were going to start spending 10 plus billion a year. That's going to increase in building the metaverse. So it's hard to really say what impact comes from the fact that one of the largest companies in the world has made this a stated objective that they're going to stick to and how much of it is the shelf space that we essentially get from having this fund. So if anyone goes in and searches Meta in their brokerage app right now, you're going to get probably two results at the top and that's valuable. So there's an obvious question. If I was in y'all's chair and you can comment on this or not to the extent that this has already been discussed and Mark rings me up or reaches out on some weird Facebook DM and says, yo, you guys clearly have the better ticker for our company than this garbage ticker we have. How do we make this happen? It seems like you either say, Facebook, you put, I don't know, 50 million into our company. I'm trying to think of like the game theory of what the right ask would be. I say, why don't you just become an angel investor in our company? 50 million sounds about right. Or we figure out some way to work together. Is that ever going to be in the cards? Are you guys chatting with the Death Star over there? Or what's? Uh, are you just going to sit fat and happy on the ticker and watch it ride? Trying to think the best way for me to answer this question in a very measured way. <laughs> I think any observer would agree that for a company whose name is the word meta, the ticker meta would be a superior ticker. And I think I kind of just want to leave it there. Sure. Well, I'm giving you my, that's my over under. I think 50 million, Mark, is a safe, Mark listens to the show. That's a safe number. Cheryl, 50 million sounds about right to me. You could do it either two ways. You could do it where you just invest in Round Hill or something similar. All right, well, we'll pass it along. Well, I think taking a step back just generally, though, like the reality is the metaverse, it's a complicated thing to build and it's going to require resources from large companies to do so. There is a big decentralized effort in the crypto community. And I personally, it's not really a business interest at this point, but I follow that very closely. And it's amazing what's happening in the crypto world. And maybe we get to that later, maybe we don't. But the reality is that having a firm like Meta Platforms Inc. and some of these other big names that are really stating an intention to enable the metaverse, like that to me is the most important takeaway here, right? Like you don't necessarily with a thematic product get that too terribly often. And I think to your point, we're a little lucky with the timing that goes without saying. That to me is the biggest takeaway is this is on the minds of some of the most powerful people in the world. 
And to the extent that resources are directed in this direction, like it's going to lead to an outcome that they're rooting for. I can't make any promissory statements about the metaverse, but like it's not not bullish for the space. There was a good thread. Why this is show note links, Sean Puri from My First Million podcast, which is a fun one. It had a good thread on metaverse. We'll add in. That's an awesome development. It's exciting for you guys. It looks like it's now in the top two jostling for size on AUM. What's the actual like composition? Is this a ball rings you guys up once a year and is like, here's what I think the index should be? Is it like 10 stocks, 100 stocks? Is it long short? Is it global? What's the actual fund look like when you buy the uh, ETF as opposed to the company formerly known as Facebook? For sure. So it is global in name. And at the end of the day, Matt and his team provide the index. And there's meant to be, for regulatory purposes, a little bit of kind of a firewall. So we're not influencing his decision-making on that and the teams. But it's a quarterly rebalance. The number of names is not set in stone. It could be anywhere from a minimum of 30 to, I think, they could go up to 75, 100, and it would still be kind of reasonable and achieving its goal. Right now, it's, I think, 40 or 41. I will say one thing that's interesting compared to the rest of our funds, it has a higher median market cap than any of our others. It's about 70 billion median market cap. And to me, I think that kind of comes back to what I was just talking about, which is if you're going to build the metaverse, you're going to need some of these larger players to really commit to it. And as a result, these larger players that have maybe the some of the elements that will make up the metaverse already in action, they're going to be the ones that are maybe most exposed, if that makes sense. But yeah, so at the end of the day, Matt and his team maintained the index and the universe. They've kind of split the world up into seven categories that they believe will enable the metaverse. And really, I think we're very excited about this partnership and about this fund and about this space and frankly, having such a knowledgeable team on it as a partner. I mean, it's funny too that, and this is obvious, of course, but that the metaverse ETF holds Meta or the company formerly known as Facebook, which of course is meta in and of itself. Ding ching. Um, I'm looking through yes. the decks. You guys do a great job on the decks. I was picking through it, which is fun just to see all the ticker names, the weights, what's going on. Are we missing anything on the meta discussion before we uh, saunter on to something else? If you want to learn about the metaverse, Matt Ball and his theme are your best resource there. So rather than boring everyone with my thoughts on it, I do think it is worth looking into the decentralized finance part of the world if you're interested in the metaverse. The reality is I think you need to be able to look at both and mostly for regulatory reasons. Meta itself has no cryptocurrency direct exposure. That's a whole nother rabbit hole that I'm sure you've gone down just how the SEC views cryptocurrencies and ETFs and all that and probably not a direction we want to go. I wrote back in 2013, I have a funny tweet that's like, there's no way a crypto ETF gets to market by year end because people were talking about back then as if it was going to come out in 2013. I said, like, I'm willing, willing to make a bet with anyone, a dinner bet. Mainly, I just wanted to go to dinner and hang out with people. I said, I prefer sushi. And I would just retweet it every year because I was like, there's no way this is coming to market anytime soon. And now you have futures everywhere else in the world. And then the future ones in the US. I'm pessimistic that one happens this year. But when it happens, hopefully next year, whenever, we'll have a big sushi party somewhere here. Anyone in Manhattan Beach, hit me up. We'll go. All right. You know what's fun is so we've covered probably deep in some other podcasts with Toby. Listeners, we'll add that in the show note links if you want to go deep into the deep ETF, which is small cap devalue. Is that right? Or is it not micro cap? Small cap? 
Yep. Small and micro, 100 names, equally weighted at rebalance. Toby's very knowledgeable in the space, and he's created this nice kind of rules-based system for screening the company. So, Yeah, I've been talking about this, so I'm already blue in the face and probably turned purple at some point, but the opportunity set of the big, large cap, market cap weighted passive versus some of the like the micro cap values. I mean, again, go to Toby's episode. We don't need to talk about it here, but it's worth the deep dive. You know what? You probably don't know this. You may know this. I did a podcast this week with another Round Hill adjacent partner of LB Partners, Mr. Chaz Cock. And I was like, you know who I'm talking to this week? And so we didn't make, I talked to him for like two hours yesterday. So that podcast will have already hit by the time this one comes out, I'm sure. Give us the backstory. Now, you're not allowed to dox him because he also has an anonymous internet Twitter account. So we'll delete it if you accidentally. He's not like super strict (laughs) that it's, but I don't want to be the one to uh, reveal it because it's a popular one. But Chaz, you probably know this, but was a college dorm mate of mine. So we don't go back to kindergarten, but we go back to college. So give us the backstory on how a hedge fund manager, former fund to fund endowment guy, fundamental stock picker got involved in you guys and ETFs. So I will not dox. I have a strict no doxing policy that I think we have to keep, especially with the way we're building our brand here. But yeah, so we ended up connecting with Chaz, actually well connected with him after Twitter spaces that they were both on. And I think what started maybe as a little bit of a joke, hey, let's do an ETF together, kind of quickly spiraled into, yeah, this is a great idea. And let's for sure do it. So we did launch an ETF recently in similar partnership to the one we have with Matt, where Chaz and his team maintain an index. And we license the index for the purpose of an ETF. And it's focused on uh, digital infrastructure, trades under the ticker Byte, B-Y-T-E. And I think at the end of the day, like, our business is around creating buzz for an ETF. And right now, like the metaverse is just creating its own buzz. When I look at what we're working on with Chaz, to me, it's really, if you look across our themes, they have this kind of tech-ish tilt. So you've got metaverse, you've got sports betting, which is very much going technology. You've got esports, streaming. And the reality is when you look at the kind of scaffolding beneath these industries, it's really what ends up in bite. It's the infrastructure that allows for the rest of this stuff to be even possible. And to me, just as an investor, you look at that and you say, well, if we're giving people the ability to bet on all these other themes that they're interested in, that maybe are a little bit more front and center in the kind of B2C space, then the names that make up a digital infrastructure ETF are, I mean, I can't make any promises performance, but like they should do well if everything else does well. So it's a little bit of almost a meta play to kind of beat that fun to death on the rest of what we're doing, which is the companies in this product are really the ones that they have to be there and they have to be kind of well-oiled machines for the rest of these opportunities to really even exist and grow in a way. So personally, I'm really excited about this fund because it may not have the same kind of shelf space in people's minds. It doesn't live rent-free like the metaverse does right now, but like it's necessarily going to... It has to keep growing for the rest of it to grow. So... I'm really excited about this fund, but yeah, it started off with Twitter Spaces and we like to stay entrepreneurial. So when the idea came up, we were like, you know what, actually, let's do this. This is awesome. So for the listener's knowledge, let's say that there's somebody listening, billion dollar money manager, $10 billion fund of funds or a family office. And they say, you know what, I have an idea for a fund 
Can you tell me briefly, like a few minutes, we'll just walk through, how does the sub-advisory indexing work? Is it like, hey, look, here's my prospectus. Here's broadly the latitude I have with coming up with an index. So is it, let's just say you find a sub-advisor out there who's interested in something and they want to design it. Like, what can they do? Meaning like, hey, I want a portfolio of stocks, update it once a quarter. Can they just pick all the stuff? Like, just help us out a little bit. Yeah. So you end up in a lot of gray areas with a lot of this stuff. I think the cleanest way to do it is how we've set it up, where it's a third party who maintains an index. That index needs to be rules-based. And rules-based is... It can be a little bit of a nuanced explanation because there's some things that you can classify into a rule, but the rule itself has a little bit of necessary human discretion built in. And hopefully this isn't being listened to by one of our SEC examiners at any point. But I think the gray area is not that gray anymore. I think people understand that this is kind of how it works. Like The indexes are no longer just top 500 companies in the US by market cap. Like We've evolved. So if you're looking to do something like that, you do have to make it, if you want to be an index provider, somewhat rules-based, somewhat of a cadence to rebalance, whether it's quarterly, semi-annually, annually. And for us to think it's interesting, you need to kind of pick a theme that we can tell a story around. So digital infrastructure, there's a story. Deep value, small and micro-cap deep value, like there's a story there. Metaverse, there's a story. It can't just be your kind of top 25 picks that I like for XYZ reason, or at least it's much harder to sell. But I will say one thing, which is you can't be that active, quote unquote, in managing it. Because if you want to be maybe a sub-advisor, my understanding is that you essentially need to be a registered investment advisor to do that role. And if you want to have an active fund where you're making decisions on kind of a daily basis, more like a Kathy would, you need to be in that role. You can't really do it in the index setup. So if you're creating an ETF strategy via an index that's meant to be somewhat similar to your broader investment strategy, that is a trade-off that you have to make. You won't be able to say, earnings were great. It's up 15% over the last three days. And that's a nice outperformance. Let's trim that and buy this. That option is kind of not available to you the way we do it. So I think that answered the question, but happy to expand on any which part. Yeah. I mean, look, listeners, again, email Tim and Wes and crew, not me, but there's a lot of ways to do it. There's a lot of different structures that probably end up working. And I think it's always, of course, evolving. But it's a lot of fun and there's a lot of cool ways to go about it. I mean, you guys have been one of the most sort of open as far as this concept of partnering. I mean, my gosh, you just found someone off Twitter spaces and other <laughs> and other places. So good on you guys. Let's round out the lineup while we're still talking about the funds. I mean, you got one more you want to pick out? What do we have not talked about? MVP. That's a fun one. Yeah. So the two we haven't really talked about are interestingly both active in name. Now we manage them very similarly to an index product, quarterly rebalance, somewhat rules-based. And those are, we have a streaming ETF under the ticker subs and a pro sports ETF under the ticker MVP. And really they're active for similar but different reasons. If you're going to own your own index for a fund, it needs to be more rules-based than if you're a third party. They just look a lot closer. For both the opportunity around streaming and the opportunity around pro sports, it just made less sense to try and make it super rules-based where you know, I think what the SEC wants to see is if you handed this to a third party and told them to run a rebalance, would it look the same as yours? I could say with pretty high confidence for nerd and for bets that the case, yes. For subs and MVP, it would have been tough. So those are active in name. They're both tackling what we think are really interesting themes. Streaming, I think we've been talking about cutting the cord for some time now. 
And I think that's an opportunity that will continue. There's been some challenges in the space. What are you using? Are you Have you cut the cord yet? I got sat down the other night. We had um, internet service was out. So I was just playing around on DirecTV. And a third of the channels were like QVC or something like an infomercial, which is astonishing, like how you pay, but can't really opt out of that. A third were like pay-per-view or some sort of like subscription that you had to upsell. It's like the worst experience. What are you doing? You got any advice for me? I know a lot of people are trying to do YouTube TV. I don't know if I have advice. I personally get a little frustrated too. I think we've maybe almost come too far in the cut the cord model because now there's like a hundred different ways you can go and you're missing one channel in one place and not in the other. We did cut the cord. It took us a while. Part of the way they get you is if you want good Wi-Fi, they say for 10 extra bucks or 20 extra bucks, you can have the TV too. And that's kind of a hard thing to move away from, especially if you're in when we were in San Francisco, we only had one choice for internet service providers. And I think if you want to talk about Byte and some of the kind of opportunities there, like a lot of the companies in there do have this well-positioned relationship with consumers where you do need their service. If you want to watch TV, you need Wi-Fi. If you want Wi-Fi, your options are relatively limited. So personally, we've got the cord. I use Fubo for like TV. I'm a big New York Rangers fan though. And I have had several stressful evenings so far this year where I realized I had channel A, channel B, and channel C, but it's on channel D tonight and I can't watch it. And Personally, I think if we could just unbundle everything and I could just buy like 30 channels, I would love that trade. If someone out there is trying to figure that out, help me out. I don't need 90% of this stuff. I really don't want it. And I would pay a bit of a premium to just pick my channel suite and move on. Yeah, same. I mean, sports is the big one for me. So kind of as hard as to replicate. MVP is funny because that's a cool strategy. It's one of all smaller funds. Every time I hear MVP, it reminds me of It's funny, like there's been a moment for the past, I don't know when the inflection point was, maybe 20 years ago or post-financial crisis, but for the better part of history, I feel like most athletes and celebrities, when they got involved investing, it was almost like a contrary signal. When you heard about someone like back in the day doing something, you're like, oh God, run away, like what a terrible idea. This reminds me of during internet bubble, MVP was a company started by, I think it was Jordan, Gretzky and Elway, and it went flaming to zero. But it was kind of like if you just put three big names on some and slap the word crypto on it today. But at some point, that signal flipped from run away to run towards. And now in the past, I don't know, certainly in the last 10 years, you have almost every time I see a interesting startup on the cap tables like Kevin Durant, Nas, on and on and on. Ashton Kutcher was probably one of the most famous early on the celebrity side. I think it's great, but just MVP reminds me of that. <laughs> I don't really know where I'm going with that. It was just a fun trend you've seen on this sort of inclusive capitalism and people understanding the concept of being an owner. I agree. I think looking back as to when it was an anti-signal, like I wasn't really so much actively investing then, but it makes sense to me that it's starting to work. And the reason is nowadays you can leverage influence a lot more easily than you used to be able to. So if you're looking at a top athlete who's in their prime, who's on the major channels for whatever sport they're playing every night, and they invest in an energy drink company, they're going to be able to give so much visibility across their channels to that company that it can actually be a catalyst for success in a way that I don't think it was as true 20 years ago. 
You didn't have social media. You didn't have these kind of ways of reaching mass audiences. And to me, I think that's maybe the biggest piece of why that shift has happened. And as a result, it's become desirable if you're starting a company that has a B2C element, why not go after those big names and get them on the cap table? Because they buy you so many eyeballs that you can't really buy any other way or not efficiently. I think we're seeing it a lot in crypto. Tom Brady's a big FTX guy now. And he had a commercial, I think they had one during the Super Bowl where he's on the phone with his mom and it's like, no, use that other one or whatever. Anyway, the point is like, I'm sure that drives signups to something like FTX or at least visibility. So they now have this more powerful tool. These people have a lot of influence. And one way for them to wield it is to invest and then add value simply by having the association with their brand. So it is something I follow. I think it's really interesting. It does tie a little bit to what we do. Like if we work with a partner and they have a following for discussing the topic we're partnering on, that's going to help us get in front of the right people. It's an audience that wants to learn more about the metaverse or digital infrastructure or what have you. You said you're a big Rangers fan. Is Dolan still an owner there? Like, I mean, wasn't, isn't he like one of the most hated owners in sports? Yeah. We used to joke that the Rangers were able to do well because Dolan didn't really care about them. He only cared about the Knicks. And then a few years back, he started caring about the Rangers, and that was a problem. He's still there. <laughs> well, you see the angle I'm getting at here. You ready? MVP gets to be a giant fund. You have Madison Square Garden as one of like the top holdings. I think it's number two, 6% holding. You end up going activist on the Dolans. I think there's an angle there, listeners. You start marketing the fund as, hey, we're going to take Dolan out when this gets to $50 billion. So I love that idea. If any uh, kind of affluent Rangers and Knicks fans are listening and you want to get involved, I'm not saying it, but give me a call. <laughs> It wasn't you guys, was it? Who was Portnoy getting involved with on the ETF side? Was that that wasn't you guys, was it? Not us. That was Buzz B U Z Z, which is a Vanek fund. Ah, uh, it was Vanek. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a Vanek fund. Which is funny because Vanek is. Um, I feel Vanek. I mean, Jan and that crew. It feels like I mean they come from such a traditional like bonds in sort of straight and narrow world. He seemed to have gotten quiet on that fund. I don't know if the SEC was like, yo, you got to stop or what, but. I'm not sure. I will say that Ben Eck, I mean, look, I try to always either not speak or speak nicely about people in our industry. I actually think Ben Eck of all the kind of larger players, they do a really good job of trying to tap into these like evolving trends. I think, frankly, when we look at some of the firms that we are maybe aspiring to be, like Vanek, I think has done a really nice job of evolving over the years. I think Global X is another one. So I do think, was I a little surprised to see Portnoy with his press conference where he had a robot say the word ETF every time so that he technically wasn't talking about the ETF? Like, that was ridiculous. <laughs> but at the same time, I was like, well played. Like, that's a nice asset gathering technique. There's a lot of parts of the world where you can take a lot of liberty in marketing advertising. In, in our world, like I put Elon Musk and things he says in that category, but in the world of professional asset management, I feel like a lot of people take the Icarus route. And it's just like makes me, my palms sweat watching some of the latitude people will take with some of the rules. So we try to err on the side of not getting in the crosshairs. But who knows? Anyway. And full disclosure as well, we're working on an index that I think tries to tap into something similar. And I can't necessarily confirm or deny if there'll be an ETF to follow. But if you 
want to do a little digging, I'm sure you'll find it. That'll be exciting. It's something we're hoping to have updates on into year end here. We'll be similar in some ways to Buzz and very different in others. So as you guys kind of look to the future, I mean, it's been a banner year, but let's uh, project out. I mean, what's on your brain? I'm going to ask two questions. So one, what are you guys thinking about? What are the main initiatives? Is it just start cranking out more funds? Is it some strategies and ideas and themes you guys are looking at particularly excited about? So I think on that, I mean, there's kind of, I would say, three things for our core business. One is more funds here in the US. And I think some of those will be roundtail only. Some will be partnered funds. Some will be a little bit different than thematic. Like I mentioned, we're working on one that's kind of a sentiment one. So more funds in the US and potentially growing the team to more formally start selling at some point, something that transparently we are thinking about, haven't done it yet. So that's one. Two is we are working on bringing funds to Europe in a USITS wrapper. That's a whole different regime and we're learning a lot along the way. You guys partner with somebody? You doing it on your own? We have partners in the process. We're not going the white label route. We're going to kind of build it ourselves where it's not one-to-one, but essentially the quote-unquote trust equivalent over there would be like a round-controlled vehicle. So it's been a learning experience, but we do want to get kind of a more global reach and we think there's potentially interest for our themes. And then the last thing is kind of tied to that a little bit, but I think that a lot of folks in the traditional asset management space are looking at cryptocurrency and they're trying to find a way in. And I think the way in that most people are looking at is having a Bitcoin ETF or something like that, or maybe like a top 10 by market cap crypto. I think there's going to be opportunities to innovate using kind of the blockchain technology. I think they might look a little bit kind of, let's just say we're trying to zig when others zag. I think that there are opportunities. We haven't really honed in on one yet, but finding a way to tap into the excitement in crypto and in the blockchain space while leaning into what we do here with the ETFs and with building kind of a community and a brand kind of one to many. There's something to do there. We just don't know yet. And 2022, a big goal for me is to figure that out. Those are some objectives. I was going to say that's pleasantly vague. (laughs) You ever get nervous? You're mostly long only, mostly equities. Is the volatility of the markets cause you concern ever? Are you ever thinking on other asset classes outside of the equity space or anything that um, is beyond the shores of stocks, stonks, as you would call them in 2021? We've done a few things that are a little bit removed, but the reality is everything we've done and frankly, everything I envision us doing is going to have some kind of leverage to public equity markets, at least for now, or I should say public markets. If we do something in the crypto space, then it's a different set of markets. But I think for myself, it's just been a matter of my roundtail ownership is probably the majority of my net worth and it is levered to the markets. So if the markets go down 30%, our ETFs will probably go down 40, maybe, like who knows. And then we'll also see outflows, which is no fun. And I think I've just been an exercise in personal growth, just becoming comfortable with that because I don't have a good way to hedge it other than buying spy puts. And it's not really my game either. So simple answer is just don't look. The private equity model, my favorite is like the talking about sketchy advertising is like the interval funds that claim like a 4% volatility because they only value the securities like once a year or whatever it is. And I'm just like, that's like how, how you can say this with a straight face, whatever. Straight face or with regulatory buy-in. Like, I can't even respond to tweets mentioning my ticker and you're allowed to say you got 4% volatility because you take a price once a year. Yeah, that's funny. Anything we didn't cover? 
We did a lot. We kind of bounced all over the place. Anything else on your brain that's got you excited, worried, concerned, confused? That's where I spend most of my time these days is confused. Confused. I spend a good amount of time confused too. No, I think, look, I think at the end of the day, it kind of comes back to your last question. We view what we're building as sort of a platform for investing that's going to stick around because of who we engage. The average web traffic for us, I think we have something like 65% is between 18 and 34. I got to imagine that skews pretty well compared to the rest of the ETF industry. So I think we can handle a downturn in stocks by virtue of the fact that going against that is this growing access and entry markets at a younger age, which I think is very healthy. A lot of people say like, you should just kind of put your money with an advisor and not worry about it. I kind of think that at the end of the day, it's good for people to start investing. Hopefully, they start with less risky behaviors or they learn away from those risky behaviors more quickly. But the reality is, it's kind of good to know how the sausage is made. And I think there's a real shift that's happening where people are interested, they're learning. Hopefully, they're making their mistakes when they have less on the table. If you want to start trading options and you're 18 years old and you put 100 bucks in and lose it, that's a lot better than starting when you're 35 and you put 15 grand in and lose it. So there's no perfect answer to it, but that to me is a trend that's going to be our friend, hopefully, regardless of what the markets decide to do. I agree with everything you said, although they're mostly want to see how the veggie sauce gets made. That's the transition now. I just had the Impossible Burger veggie chicken nuggets, listeners. I'm a shareholder, so I'm always promoting Impossible Burger. Got it. I'm on record. I think it's a $50 billion company eventually, but the nuggets, my family taste test gave it a two thumbs up. I thought they were... Fine, good, but I'm not a huge chicken nugget person anyway. What's been your most memorable investment over the years as you look back trading Forex and bonds and now ETFs and stocks? What comes to mind for you? That's a good question. Most memorable investment. Wow. I mean, I started when I was 16. I think first stock I bought was 3M. And I think it might have been because it was a number starting the name of the company. So it was higher on the list. <laughs> no, I think, look, the way I think about investing from my personal side at this point is I'm not trading it terribly actively. I have some longer term names that I like. I buy a lot of my own ETFs and other ETFs because I think that's a good strategy for me. I think, honestly, if we want to go most memorable investments, it's probably within the crypto space. And it's not so much just for the returns, which can be eye popping if you get the right thing at the right time. But it's more because by investing in crypto, you kind of get to learn about a new technology. And to me, that's been really cool. So I think it's probably, generally speaking, my deep dive into the crypto ecosystem and trying different things within DeFi and figuring out the difference between the different layer one protocols and which ones work better and which ones are expensive. And I think that to me has probably been, it's been more recent, but has been a really rewarding activity. And I can't say everyone should try getting into crypto, but it's an interesting technology. You just outed yourself as the Shiba whale. (laughs) I've never bought a dog meme coin. And that has been a horrible trading strategy for me. But yeah, I like that should be the only rule to learn anything. It's just to buy uh, dog themed coins and put them away forever until you have $5 billion. That's the way it works. Yeah, I miss that trade. I think it's really easy to be skeptical about new stuff. And I think if you're going to be too skeptical, you're more likely to miss opportunities than not. So Well, my man, um, it's been a blast. Enjoyed seeing y'all's success. Looking forward to my hat in the mail. Where do people find more info? They want to track what you guys are doing, buy some funds. Where do they go? Yeah, sure. No, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure catching up. 
I think most everything you'll want to find is if you're on Twitter, we're at Roundhill. I'm also on there. I'm probably a less interesting follow than the company account, but I'm at Maloney Sandwich. And then look, we're a pretty publicly out there brand. So most of what you want to find, you find if you start at that Twitter page, roundhillinvestments.com. And we're pretty open book. Shoot me a DM if you have questions. Happy to chat. What is the Maloney Sandwich? Is there an actual sandwich or is that just a nickname or what? No, it's kind of just like something I've been using for a while. I don't even really eat sandwiches much anymore, but it is a goal for me to have a sandwich named after myself. What would it be? What's your go-to? Like if you, you what's your dream sandwich? So it's going to be something along the lines of chicken cutlet, bacon, probably some mozzarella cheese, hot sauce, God. maybe a little bit of mayo, maybe some shredded lettuce. If ever there's been a Northeast sandwich, that's it. If you tried to order that in Los Angeles, people would just be like, what is this person talking about? Yeah, especially when I say on a hero. (laughs) Yeah, I was tweeting this morning. I said, what's your favorite example of inflation followers? Because mine is I had an $18 turkey sandwich last week. Now, to be fair, the turkey sandwich was delicious, but it was still $18. But again, I I live in LA. We're in the land of $5 gas. All right, well, we're just veering off into no man's land now. Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. No, I appreciate it. It's good to be on. And I look forward to hearing the uh, Chaz podcast. And hopefully he had similarly complimentary things to say about us. Awesome. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.